Hello and welcome to Pop Screen, part of the Geek Show Podcast Network. We are Geek Show's podcast that deals with movies starring by or about pop stars. No, the podcast covers such a broad range of literary and cinematic genres. Uh, not even literary and cinematic genres. I don't know why I've said that. This is based on a book, everyone. I've been thrown by the fact that there's a book. Uh, no, the podcast covers such a broad range of musical and cinematic genres from country and western to hip-hop, from documentaries to science fiction. I'm Graham Williamson, a filmmaker and critic for The Geek Show and Horrified, the British horror website, and I've been joined this week by... Hello, I am uh, Prob, also known as that guy who hates Freejack and also tolerated moon- uh, Moonwalker. I've been here before. This is a hot. This is a hot seat. I am full of hot takes. I also... Started the Geek Show with uh, other Rob at some point in the far distant past. Indeed, yes. Yes. Uh, I uh, I have been a critic of many, many, many things. Most recently, it is people playing games badly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I keep those criticisms to myself. It's more... I, I think I've reached that age, that age now where, you know, when the old man shouts at clouds because <laughs> they're doing the clouds wrong. I think I've reached that stage where I'm just watching people play video games badly and I'm shouting at the screen. <laughs> Old man shouts at cloud storage. Yes, basically. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I am keeping that one. <laughs> that fits me to a T. I am the old man who shouts at cloud storage. <laughs> Well, normally there's a bespoke intro here, but I haven't done one this time because I thought this is a film... I, I, well, the last time we, we joined, we should point out, that was our longest non-Patreon episode for Moonwalker. If you haven't listened to that yet, listeners, that was a long one. This one... It was, but I mean, Moonwalker was basically a concert. Yeah. And this... And we were talking about a concert. This... Yeah. This is based on one of the biggest cult novels of all time by one of the major cult directors of all time. I There is a lot of obsession to go around and between us, I think we cover all of it. Um, so what I'm saying, listeners, is maybe just settle in. Settle into your favourite armchair. Do yourself a mug of something hot, because this could take a while. Yeah. I mean, uh, it, it's, it's one of those things where you look at... The source material, you look at the film that came from the source material and you go, I don't remember any of that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that works. That's in. That's in. Don't remember any of that. (laughs) It's David Lynch's June, listeners, in case you've just sort of clicked on this while blindfolded. Um, So I think we should probably start off by, by giving our June power levels. What level of June fan of either the movie or the novel, are you? Well, um, I've read the books. As in... uh, Well, I am what's effectively a card-carrying, dyed-in-the-wool, semi-psychotic sci-fi junkie. Yes. You know, I basically buy sci-fi from uh, from a local dealer and then I find myself on a street corner just injecting it into my veins. You know, <laughs> it's good sci-fi, that. Yeah, prostituting <laughs> buy yourself for more Theodore Sturgeon. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. Uh, <laughs> Star's my destination and, uh, you know, brave new world, man. <laughs> I go for the good stuff. <laughs> 
But yeah, so, yeah, I have I have a very very thin uh, relationship with literary science fiction, and it's something I'm slightly embarrassed about. So I have not read any Frank Herbert. Well, this is the thing about Dune. Mm. Dune is Dune is effectively a treatise on um, on a certain way of looking at society and how you know people's places in society and things like that. There's loads of people who've interpreted various aspects of Dune. The book, mm. you know, and it is very, very dense. There is a lot of world building, but it's also very, 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 very traditional sci-fi. And by that, I mean, it is very descriptive, very exposition heavy. It is old school sci-fi, kind of at the peak of what old school sci-fi was. And we're talking about sci-fi that ranges back to the likes of E.E. Uh, e. Doc Smith with the Lensman stuff all the way up to June. After June, it can sci-fi started getting a little bit easier for people to get into. You still had some kind of throwbacks, like Kim Stanley Robinson's Mars trilogy and stuff like that. And also, you had um, oh, what was it? We, we we covered one on Literary Lightning, and I'm trying to remember the name. It's a nice, thick tom of a book about the future and and humanity's future like thousands and thousands of years in progression into the future. And I can't remember the name of the book, but it's on my bookshelf. Damn it. Um, but yeah, you still get throwbacks like that, which are really, really catered to fans like me. Mm. But then you get the more kind of low-level sci-fi, basically what I would call science fantasy rather than science fiction. Because science fiction is hard, right? Yeah, science, You can have... You can have cyberpunk-type science fiction, but that's still quite hard science fiction when you get right down to it. Because even though you talk, you know, cyberpunk is talking about um, changing the body in some way using technology, um, you know, cyborgs, cyberization, things like that. That's where that's where the term is: the yeah. fusion of biological and technological. And even though that is a thing, you know, it's still quite hard. Mm. But then you have the likes of, say, Star Wars. Yeah, which will, Space which will exercise a certain influence, I think, over our conversation here, because this yes. is very obviously intended by its producer, Dino De Laurentiis, to be his Star Wars. Yes, and I think that that's the big problem here, mm. is that in no way was Dune meant to be Star Wars. No, no, it really wasn't. And in no way was David Lynch meant to direct Star Wars, although, if you can believe it, he was actually scouted and asked to direct Return of the Jedi before he signed up to this. I'm sorry, but I would would pay good money to see David Lynch's version of Return of the Jedi. Absolutely, yes. No, no, in fact, I will go even further... I demand David Lynch's version of The Phantom Menace. <laughs> I demand it. I, I want it now. This needs to happen. I want an, I want a Twitter campaign. David Lynch's version of The Phantom Menace. It needs to happen. You know it needs to happen. It'll start a new whole prequel trilogy. That'll be so much better. And a lot of weirder as well. It'll be a lot weirder. replaced with Garmin Bowser. Yeah. Jar Jar Binks replaced with that weird giant guy. Yeah. I mean, hell, uh, it'll be uh, it'll be a lot less racist. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so that's our respective 
uh, experience with Frank Herbert's book. What about this film? How many times have you seen this film? Because I assume it's more than once. <sighs> I am ashamed, ashamed, ashamed as a massive fan of the book, uh, but also as someone who has effectively been uh, protected and desensitized against science fiction of this type by massive doses of uh, really, really bad 70s and 80s sci-fi. We're talking like uh, Battle Beyond the Stars and the likes of that. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I can approach Dune, the 1984 version, and watch it as a movie and completely, completely uh, disassociate myself from having any knowledge of the book and just enjoy it as a film. Which is a weird power to have, because when you then go and talk to fellow fans of the book, they're like, "I don't think it was a bad movie." Uh, uh, you can see the you can see the evil appearing in their eyes. <laughs> Does it still have that rep? Because my my understanding of June was that it was genuinely hated for a very long time, but it people have recently softened towards it. I think people have. Persons in particular that I will not name haven't. <laughs> <laughs> you know who you are. <laughs> but I, th that's the thing, because of course part of the reason why we're doing this now is Denis Villeneuve's uh, enormous adaptation of the first half of Frank Herbert's Dune. Uh, Which is, I agree with the way that he's doing this. Mm. It is... It is the best way, and in fact, the only way you should be doing it. You shouldn't approach. You shouldn't approach a project like Dune thinking you're going to cram everything, even just in the first book, into yeah. one film. And that was the biggest problem with the 1984 version. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah we'll get onto that. But it, it's it's coming out very soon, and it's been one of those projects that's been in development for ages, much as the original film was. But I venture that it would have been impossible to do another version of Dune in, like, the 1990s or the early 2000s. I think Lynch's film just had too bad a reputation for another big film project. But now, part of the reason why this Villeneuve version exists, I think, is because people have looked back at Dune and thought, ah, there's some good stuff in there. It's just kind of frustrating, you know? And I actually agree with you. I think that that's effectively what's happened. Mm. Um, when you look at the production of the original 1984 Dune... And we will. Oh, boy, we will. Yeah. You know, there were a lot of things that... Um, that Even though there were deviations from the book, and even though some of them were just plain not in the book at all, or just came out of someone's mind, they didn't fit with any descriptive descriptive things from the book whatsoever mm. but they worked and yeah. you know by the by its nature when you adapt something from a book to a play or a movie or something like that when you adapt it from one form one medium to another there are going to be fundamental changes because you can't help that that's going to happen yeah and it it's all about managing those changes and making sure those changes don't impact too much on the core story which is why a lot of people hated the original dune because a lot of the changes did impact on the core story, um, on the core been, message. 
it could have been very different, couldn't it? I mean, yes, the people people cry blue murder about some of the changes Lynch made, but there were versions of it that existed that were in production before this that could have been very, very, very different, weren't there? Oh God, yeah. Oh God, yeah. I know. version. Yeah, Hodorowski's um, Dune would have been interesting, but you know, given given how he was at the time as well, mm. um, you know, that's why I say it would have been interesting. I'm not saying it would have been better. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, you know, because you have to take the time period into account as well, and how people's mentalities were at that point. One mm. of my biggest issues with uh, with June 1984 was that the role of women was severely downplayed. So they were effectively damsels in distress most of the time. They were the princess in the tower. And that is a big deviation from how they are in the book. Uh, they're seen in the book as cre- uh, as creatures to be feared. Mm. You know, they have is, power is, that don't that others don't understand. This is one of the interesting things about looking at what Villeneuve is making at the moment. Um, yeah. Because obviously my main way to assess what June is and whether this is working or not is to compare it, particularly its casting to the Lynch version. And you have actors who are very big right now in roles that do not register in the Lynch version. Chief among them, Zendaya, who's been yeah. almost as prominent in the marketing for the Vilmer version as uh, Timothy Chalamet, who's playing... Uh, who's played Kyle McLaughlin. One day I'll remember the Paul Yes, thank Paul you. Atreides, yeah. <laughs> He'll always be Agent Cooper to me. I don't care. Yeah. See, this is the thing, right? Um, casting Carl McLaughlin was, okay, totally fine. I've got no problem with it, but mm. totally the wrong age, right? Mm. Paul Atreides is a child still. He's still finding his way in the world. He's still lost without mummy and daddy. You know, he still isn't sure of things. And so having um, Timothy, what's Shalami. his surname? Charlemagne. Yeah. Tim, I'm going to start calling him Emperor Charlemagne, just so. <laughs> <laughs> I remember Emperor Charlemagne. That's close enough. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> so Emperor Charlemagne, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's like how I remember Benedict Cumberbatch's name. I once made the mistake of calling him Emerson Cumberbund, and now forever he is Emerson Cumberbund in my head. That's a great <laughs> name, yes. Everyone's got their own wacky Cumberbatch variant, but that is the best I've yeah. heard. See, Emerson Cumberbund, I think, works for works for works for Bendy Cumberbatch, but also could possibly be a Brazilian footballer. Yes, <laughs> or like a nineteen seventies soft rock band, Yellow, supported by Emerson. Cumberbund. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, so many options. <laughs> but yeah, anyway, um, Emperor Charlemagne, he's more. He looks like he's more of a teenage boy. Yeah. Um, he has that frailty about him that you would expect to see from a uh, from someone who's effectively been raised you know in immense wealth and power and you know and uh, privilege yeah I'll so yeah you know and so he has that frailty that you see when you look at royalty and stuff like that when during their teenage years in particular um Kyle Zendaya Kaplan, meanwhile yeah. looks like a, a, a itinerant member of the Osmonds in this. Yeah, 
<laughs> yes. I, uh, there's nothing I can say about that. There's, yeah, <laughs> he looks like that. <laughs> I mean, it's it, it, it's it's a weird thing that they picked Cal McLaughlin, but I kind of go with it because I'm used to it now. After many, many, many viewings of Dune, I'm not even going to tell you how many because I lost count a while ago. Um, yeah. Every, every time it's on TV, I kind of sit down and watch it and remind myself yeah. never again. <laughs> See, I but every single time, Brooklyn, and and I can understand him being miscast in this because it was his first big role, and no one really knew what his thing was. But um, yeah, I, I think his his strength is that he is able to bring this sort of snarky, ironic quality to everything that yeah. he plays, which is very appealing. And the further June goes on, the less room there is for that. He is very, very yeah. out at sea in the later stages of this, I think. Yeah, and I think part of the reason for that was because um, there was a rumour going around uh, that came out after the film was released. And there was mention made that Carl McLaughlin was familiar with the source material. Which he was, was yes. kind of a rarity, yeah. for, you know, um, and he wasn't happy with the changes that were being made, and he right. knew that other fans of the material weren't going to be happy, which is one of the reasons why you can see kind of as the film progresses, he becomes more and more stony-faced, more and more kind of um, one emotion, that's it, and the the... There is a thought that people have that maybe it's him transitioning from human to something else. Personally, I think it's him getting angrier and angrier and angrier <laughs> by the end of the film. <laughs> yes. You were going to say something about Zendaya. in a monologue. You were going to say something about Zendaya. Zendaya. Yeah, I was going to say... Zendaya uh, is chaining. I got to... Yeah. <laughs> um... See, I think Zendaya is a great actress. I think she has amazing talent, and I think that she has a brilliant, brilliant future ahead of her. And yeah. I, uh, and the female character um, that she plays in Dune, and I am struggling to remember her name. Damn it, Cheney. Why can I not remember her name? That was it, Cheney. Yeah, was it Cheney? Uh, I may be mispronouncing. Can't remember. It, it's C H A N I. They're probably pronouncing it in a way that makes it sound a bit. Less oh yeah, Cheney. Yeah, Cheney. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but anyway, um, her character is immensely important in uh, in that section of the book when uh, Paul meets the Fremen and basically goes to stay with the Fremen. That section is hugely important, and she is such an important character in the book. And yeah. she, you know. In a sense, you know, I like the fact that she has as much presence in the trailers as um, Emperor Charlemagne. Um, I am sticking to that, by the way. Yes. <laughs> I like the fact that she has uh, she has as much presence in the trailer as uh, Emperor Charlemagne, and that you know, the, it looks like that she's going to get the. Um, the screen time that she deserves as a character, because mm. I really like her character. I think she's a fascinating character for for anyone to write about, let alone Frank Herbert. 
Yeah. And in no. the 84 version, she's played by Sean Young in one of those decorative roles that Sean Young sadly got stuck in. And she is basically just Paul's dream girl, really, isn't she? Yeah, exactly. And that's the big problem. I mean, uh, Cheney was already like a really good warrior before they even met Paul. And then she gets trained in the waiting way by Paul and uh, Jessica. Um, you know, then she becomes absolutely lethal. Um, she basically, uh, has various things. She, you know, when Paul's in like a deep space trance, he, she brings him out of it. Um, and, uh, you know, her, their first child, which is, uh, Leto the second, he's killed as an infant. Yeah. Yeah. Not to be confused with their other son, Leto the second Atreides. Who grows up to be Jared Leto, right? No, no, he's in Children of Dune and was played by James McAvoy in the t- in the remarkably good TV series. Ah, that's yeah, nice. There so. is one character in Lynch's version who I have not spotted in the cast list for uh, Villeneuve's Dune, though, and that is the reason why we're doing it on pop screen. I have not seen any sign of Fade Rauther in the cast list for the new version of June. See, this is the thing. Fade Rautha is one of those characters who, you know, looks great. You know, because you got to admit, Sting, if there's one thing I wanted Sting to do more of was play the bad guy. Yeah. Right? I, I, I really wanted Sting to have more roles as, like, the psychopath, the bad guy, something like that. Because I thought he, I, th- I always thought he'd play those roles really well. Thinking about Brimstone and Treacle, maybe. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, do you remember? Do, oh, do you ever remember that uh, movie Copycat? Oh, with Sigourney Weaver. Sigourney Weaver, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where with Harry Connick Jr. as the serial killer, who the other guy is copying from. Yes. And Harry Connick Jr. is is brilliantly evil in that film. Yeah. And I thought, it's Harry Connick Jr. He's like one of the nicest guys in music. Yeah, yeah. I th- I suppose that, that may be why you cast musicians as these people, because they, they are characters where you need to be uncertain about what they're going to do. And casting an actor, you might think, oh, he's going to do his usual thing that I've seen him do in movies before, because... There seems to be a general link between Fade Rauther and rock stars. In the Hodorowsky version, he wanted to cast yeah. Mick Jagger as Fade Rauther. And then Sting is cast in the role in the Lynch version. Like I say, no, no one cast yet in the Villeneuve version, so there's still time for him to get, I don't know, that bloke from Arcade Fire in there. He could do it. Um, See, this is the thing... Um... See, Fade Rauther appears, you know, uh, appears early in the story as well. So he, w- I reckon, he will make an appearance in this first film. Mm. Just, I think that maybe they're keeping who's playing him a secret, maybe, and yeah. haven't announced it. Um, so it be- so it serves as a surprise for the audience. And I know that June is one of those films where you don't really need to surprise the audience with a lot of things if you do the film the right way, because mm. there's plenty of surprises. And yeah. plenty of plenty of spectacles to see, but 
you know, maybe it's something like that. I wouldn't put it past the executives to make that decision, especially if it's a name that will shock a lot of people. Perhaps, yes, yeah. There are plenty of names that will shock people further down the cast list yeah. for this. I think there is nothing more incongruous now watching June today than Sir Patrick Stewart's role. Given that he was in the 1984 version, yes. <laughs> yeah. Because he he was cast in this role when, um, you mentioned earlier, Paul Atreides in the book is much younger, and for a while David Lynch yeah. was going to cast Dexter Fletcher, who he'd worked with on The Elephant Man. Yes. Yes. And I'll be honest, I actually wouldn't have minded that. Yeah, no, I, I think that would have been good. Um, I wouldn't so have minded he, Dexter Fletcher. He went and spoke to him when he was in Henry the Fourth, Part One, or something similar. Mm. Uh, and he was in the same rehearsal room as Patrick Stewart. And Lynch literally overheard um, Patrick Stewart rehearsing and just went, "Wait, who's that?" And the rest is history. That's how. Sir Patrick Stewart ended up um, running into battle, carrying a pug, and shouting the immortal line, Moods are for cattle and love play. Can't argue with that. No, uh, I mean, there are, there are, those are wise words. <laughs> but and they deserve but, to be on the flag we make of your face. <laughs> one of the key. <laughs> You have no idea what that's about, listeners, and I'm pleased to just let you speculate because it, it's it's fun to speculate. It's nice to have an essential mystery. Yeah, it, it, you know, you can make it a hobby. <laughs> yeah. Um, what 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 the fuck is with the pugs in this film, though? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, you're asking me you're asking me questions for which I've spent. How old am I now? 30 years. 30 years. Well, I'm glad I wasn't having a drink when you said that. <laughs> June came out in 1984. Yes. Yeah. I uh, Is it 30 years? It's closing in on 40, uh, as indeed am I. Closing in on... Oh, God, I'm so old. Um, <laughs> over 30 years. <laughs> Let yes. me slightly amend that. Over 30 years, I have been wondering what the hell is with the pugs. <laughs> in many ways, the weirdest thing in a David Lynch movie is the fact that in, in outer space, on all of these alien planets, there are just so many pugs. Yeah, and considering that they're man-made animals that would not survive without man. Yeah. And they barely survive with man. Yeah, really weird. Um... I mean, right. So, where are we starting with this? We've we, we've kind of danced around the houses a little bit. Shall we dive in to something? I think we must. Yeah, because this starts off with Virginia Madsen delivering an expositional monologue that is so long that at one point she fades out and then comes back again and goes, oh, by the way, I forgot. <laughs> Which, wow. Which is, uh, I mean, 
that has to be one of the greatest exposition-based intros to any movie ever. It's like, I mean, that is, I, I, I officially turned that. Did I leave the the Did I leave the gas on introduction? <laughs> we mentioned the Phantom Menace earlier, and it has that same quality that all that stuff about yeah. taxation and trade routes has at the start of Phantom Menace, where your heart just drops like a ball as it goes on and on and on. See, for fans of June, it was fine. You know, there was a lot of stuff that we that we were familiar with. Like, okay, right, they're just getting all the all the. Heavy info dump out of the way. Little did we know that the movie was effectively an info dump. Um, mm. <laughs> yes. So, yeah. <laughs> and it goes on from here. The, the next sort of big thing I remember, and for some reason I always remember this is happening about halfway through the movie, but it's not. It's right there at the start. You have Jose Ferrer, who is introduced talking to this this big metal thing that is brought on that looks very much like the kettle that David Bowie turns into in Twin Peaks The Return, right? Yes. Um, that's yeah. basically the Space Guild special report thing, isn't it? That it you're is. talking about when the, when the Space Guild or the people who have taken so much spice, because let me be clear on one thing in particular, right? And it's an it's a much overlooked aspect of Dune as a story. The idea that if you get high enough, you can fold space. Yes, these are my <laughs> main moral lessons that I get from Dune. Uh, if you take enough drugs, you can travel through space. Uh, and rebel heroes do jihad. Those are the essential morals of it. That's just from the movie, the 1984 movie as well, okay? So take take everything with a pinch of spice, okay? <laughs> yeah, that guilt now Right, anyway. Uh, yeah. It's, I mean, it's... when he turns up, you could, you could see very clearly Lynch had no idea what to make him look like, so went and filmed a manatee. <laughs> 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 he didn't actually film a manatee, but that's what it looks like. Well, he had... The, the it looks like song... a manatee, doesn't it? It does look like a manatee. He had an explanation about this. Um, <laughs> he said, I wanted the third stage navigator to be a fleshy grasshopper. And I took a drawing in for Tony Masters, the production designer. Tony took that drawing and augmented it in the details and then Carlo Rambaldi built it. I have a theory about Carlo Rambaldi. He always builds himself. And so somehow the navigator looks to me a little bit like Carlo Rambaldi. And E.T. looks exactly like Carlo Rambaldi. I'm scared to Google the guy now. I am not scared to Google the guy. In fact, I am going to Google the guy. Actually, what the hell? Yeah, I'm going to do it. Let me see. Rambaldi. Uh, yeah, R-A-M-B-A-L-D-I. Dear God, what is that? Oh, right, yeah. He looks nothing like E.T. He doesn't. There's even a picture of him with this little sort of sculpture of E.T. beside him, and I am not confused as to which is which. I suppose in David Lynch's world, you know, <laughs> yes. after uh, after a few too many bouts at the Spice, maybe they look the same. 
But I, I would I would easily recognise E.T. and Carlo Rambaldi. Number one, I would identify I would identify the human as the one with the really thick bushy eyebrows. Yes. <laughs> Because if you're talking has... about a really identifying feature on Carlo Rombaldi's face, it's his eyebrows. He's also got a normal sized neck and legs, which I think is a dead giveaway. Yeah, and he's wearing clothes, which is also a dead giveaway. <laughs> but it's the eyebrows. If you removed all of those things and then covered up everything else, the eyebrows would be a dead giveaway. <laughs> Do you think it's like an Italian thing because Martin Scorsese has those eyebrows as well. Maybe Carlo Rambaldi and Martin Scorsese are cousins. Maybe you never know. Small world. Same number of syllables. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, the the next thing that stands out for me after the Navigator is when we get to House Harkonnen, which you have to tread through a bit to get through. But House Harkonnen are, I think, one of the big triumphs of this movie. Really? I mean, from my perspective, let me... Okay, yeah. From 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 a movie perspective, yes, I will agree. But not just from a movie perspective, from a Lynch perspective. They are the part of the film where you can look at them and you can look at Wild at Heart or Blue Velvet and think, oh, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. 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 Same guy. I got you. This. Yeah. Yeah. I got you. Yeah, um, uh, yeah. It it make it does make sense, and you do get that through line of thought, and just. But some of the dialogue at that point is just. I was sitting there. I'm going. What are you saying, Emperor? <laughs> your skin is so beautiful. I uh, uh, <laughs> I am in love with your pus. I'm like, what? What are you saying? <laughs> You see, for for me, the problem is not so much the dialogue or the spoken dialogue as the dialogue you get in voiceover, which is spectacularly unnecessary. And at the end of that first big Harkonnen scene where the Baron kills his manservant, there's just a spectacularly extraneous bit where he turns to the camera and you hear this voice go, and that's what I'm hoping to do to Paul Atreides or something like that. And you think... There's a lot of aspects of this story that need clarifying, but one that does not need clarifying is the fact that the baddies, right, don't like the goodies. I don't yeah. need voiceover for that. And do you know who actually had the best um, kind of acting in that entire scene? Mm-hmm. Was Sting, weirdly enough. When you look at all of the actors who were on display in that one scene in House Harkonnen, in the House Harkonnen green room, let's call it that because it's green, and it's before they go on stage, do their all, you know, and shake their thing on the stage, you know, yeah, in war and stuff. So it's like their preparation room kind of thing. Hence, it's green. <laughs> I guess. But hello, but I, I... sting. Sting Sting's method. reaction to all of the things that are going on around him is shown on his face. Yeah. You know, confusion, resentment, things like that. And you can see it. And also when the Emperor is killing his manservant, total enjoyment, you know, and yeah, even yeah. excitement. And that 
you know, and it's all delivered without words. And I like the fact that he didn't, you know, he didn't get any lines in that scene, but he still half stole the show in that scene. Yeah, I guess. I, I will say that, you know, again, looking down the cast list for Veal Nerves, um, Stellan Skarsgård as Baron Harkonnen was the only one where I thought, oh, big shoes to fill there. Because I guess maybe it's just the fact that I'm not as familiar with Kenneth McMillan as an actor as I am with Jose Ferreira or Francesca Annes yeah. or Patrick Stewart or all the other hundreds of people in this. But his performance feels to me like completely of its character. It feels completely embodied. I'm not watching an actor there. It it feels so real in a big, grotesque way. And that's, I think, part of why I think the Harkonnen scenes are the best things in the movie. Have you heard Odomovsky's rationale for casting that, by the way? Go on, tell me. In the documentary Hodorowsky's Dune, there is a brilliant bit where he's talking to camera and uh, he's saying, so I'm, I'm looking at the character of the Baron and he's a, he's a big fat guy. He's huge. He's so big that he sort of floats around like a blimp and he just eats and eats all the time. And I thought, aha, Orson Welles. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. I mean, wow. don't get me wrong, Orson Welles would have killed the ball, but it is kind of embarrassing that the guy who had made several of the greatest films of all time was now being cast on the basis that he is really fat. And uh, if that's the case, why not just summon Marlon Brando? <laughs> well, <laughs> this is the early 70s. I don't think he'd quite got to his his peak physique that you see in the island of Dr. Moreau. Well, you know, that's because, you know, he could have been a contender. He could have been somebody. <laughs> yes. Um, no, but uh, I, I just, uh, the reason I mentioned Marlon Brando is because the just the thought of uh, of Baron Harkonnen as the Godfather just tickles me for some reason. Because in the book, he's basically an evil genius, right? Yeah. He doesn't really have all the skin lesions and stuff like that, he's just so fat, he can't carry his own weight. And oh, so, you know, he needs right. special yeah. help. Yeah, And that's that's one of those things where Lynch has basically taken the liberty of pointing out that the really ugly guy with all the post-filled lesions and stuff like that, that's the bad guy, kids, you know? <laughs> In case you were wondering who the bad guy is. It's what one of the few bits in it, I guess, that feels like it's done in those primary colours. So I can see why it would rub someone the wrong way a bit. It is, it is not a very sophisticated yeah. casting. It's one of those filmmaker things where they basically say, "Look, it's the bad guy. You know, it's the bad guy because they're ugly. They go all ugly people are bad." Yeah, no, that's that's. And I don't like that kind of. I don't like that kind of patronising. You know, no, filmmaking, filmmaking or storytelling. Yeah. No, I think that's an absolutely fair critique. There's some bizarre looks elsewhere in the film. I'm looking at my notes from when I watched it and I've written, uh, Freddie Jones is Dennis Healy. Maybe this is the Carlo Rambaldi influence again, that he's just giving everyone his eyebrows. Yeah, possibly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's a... 
there's there's things that uh, there's things that you just have to have to just kind of take it on the chin and go with because yeah if you right if you sit I I've seen many 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 articles book reviews film reviews comparisons charts graphs all sorts of things thrown at. June 1984 versus June the book, yeah. where they say, oh, but well, this wasn't in the movie, but it was in the book. Why wasn't it in the movie? You know, we think because of this reason, and it's always some weird reason that, you know, doesn't quite fit. Uh, and most of them ignore the simple reason that, hey, the studio wanted a certain runtime. Yeah. Something's got to give. So- a certain runtime and a certain certificate. I feel like, um, I think in the UK it's a 15, but it, in the US it had to be delivered mm. as a PG-13. And I think when you've got David yeah. Lynch behind the camera, that kind of hems off some of the things that he can do. But yeah, it's true. One of the running details I've noticed in researching the production of this film is there seems to be an obsession with how big the script was that after Hodorowsky left, there was a brief attempt at getting this off the ground with Ridley Scott directing in Rudy World. It's a scripting which, aside from anything else, is just one of those mad combinations of director and screenwriter. Like You could give them Anne of Green Gables and it would come out absolutely bizarre because they're so mismatched, I think. But anyway. Uh, well, not only that, I mean, his surname is Wurlitzer. <laughs> it's such a I'm sorry, but... Rudy <clears throat> Wurlitzer, man. So, Rudy Wurlitzer, and do you know, uh, I, I, I would, uh, you know, anybody who writes a story and their surname is Wurlitzer, you know what I'm expecting? I'm expecting excitement. I'm expecting adventure. I'm expecting a roller coaster of emotions, and I mean that quite literally because the Wurlitzer is that ride yes. at the fairground. Rudy <laughs> Wurlitzer is probably most famous as the writer of Sam Peckinpah's film Pat Garrison, Billy the Kid. I thought so, you were going to say as the inventor of that right at the fairground. Well, probably, actually, yeah. But he's probably his son, <laughs> isn't he? That's how he got into Hollywood with the money from his dad's yeah. invention. But yeah, so you've got the director of Alien and the writer of Pat Garris and Billy the Kid collaborating on June. That's mad. But anyway, their script was 187 pages long. Lynch came on board and his first draft was 200 pages long. They managed to do most of the hack and slice before it went into production. But when you consider that this film is two and a quarter hours, I mean, that's basically a whole hour of material that's gone. Yeah. Yeah. I know... The thing with the script, and this was the thing that I think kind of annoyed me more and more the more I watched it over the years. Mm. It didn't annoy me at first, and I do remember when I first watched June, I was like, ooh, this was all right. Wasn't that bad. Didn't really think about it, because I'd read June by that point, and I'd read the other books, God Emperor June, Children of June, you know, um, Chapter House June, stuff like that. I'd read other books by the time I got around to watching June. And <clears throat> didn't think anything of it. Mm. Because I'd been desensitized by 70s and 80s sci-fi. Yes. So, as I watch more and more of June over the years, as it comes on TV and, you know, I find it on like various uh, channels or 
find it on video and decide to watch it again. I become more and more annoyed at the the. I have to deliver this properly, so let me just get into character as if I'm in David Lynch's 1984 Dune. <laughs> shall I shall I shout action in the voice of David Lynch? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Act, I, I do action. Okay, Pete, action. Whisper like this when they were doing their <laughs> I don't know why I should have an inner monologue like this when I should whisper all of the time. I don't know why everyone has to whisper in a voice like this, even when they're speaking out loud. Why does no one shout in this film? Except over speakerphone. It doesn't make sense. Is everyone trying to be really, really quiet because they're hunting wabbits? Is that what it is? <laughs> It's possible oh, that it's like a laryngitis <laughs> outbreak on set. And he's yep, that works. Film it. <laughs> Maybe it's just too much spice. <laughs> Maybe it's too much spice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That or, is- or, or even better, a bad case of worms. <laughs> Sorry, couldn't resist. <laughs> Isn't it funny how out of all of the things that go on in June... The sandworms and Sting's nappy are the things that everyone remembers. <laughs> oh, Sting's Sting's uh, Sting's winged codpiece. Yes, yes, that's a better <laughs> that's, description. It is. It is a winged codpiece. L- look <laughs> at it. It is a majestic winged codpiece. How many people did not want that? Well, all of us. We did not want that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, if you were going to swimming lessons at school. If you go to swimming lessons at the swim baths, or you know, that's the last thing you want to wear. <laughs> <laughs> the drag off that while you're swimming. So no. you're saying that the official June swimwear line was not a merchandising <laughs> success? Uh, probably not. <laughs> Can you imagine beachwear by June? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good because I remember when the. Tra- when the latest trailer for Villeneuve's film came out and it begins with like that voiceover from Zendaya in the desert, I think every single person made the spice and you fragrance by Calvin Klein joke. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the thing I hope is that there's there's much less whispering in Denny Villeneuve's uh, version of Dune because I got so sick of all of the whispering and all of the inner monologues. I, I after I watched Austin Powers mm. and then went back to watch Dune, my first thought was, why can't they have Austin Powers mon- inner monologues? <laughs> <laughs> Where you actually see the lips moving and they just got it, it's as if they're narrating their own life. I think I wanted that. they will have to talk a bit louder in Villeneuve's Dune because the score is by Hans Zimmer, so you'll need to bellow over the foghorn that he's brought in for this one. I mean, uh, see, I, I, knowing Hans Zimmer's work as we do, I reckon it's only a matter of time until he literally just does a musical score made of foghorns off ships. Yes. <laughs> Hans Zimmer's work always reminds me of that bit in uh, The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou where Bill Murray takes Owen Wilson out to listen to the whale song and there's just that this loud foghorn in the background yeah. and Owen Wilson goes, wow, I mean, what are they saying? 
yeah. I mean, uh, it's at that point that I kind of, that I kind of that I went. I like Owen Wilson. <laughs> I do too. Yes, he's a delight. But anyway, um, it's. This is probably as good a time as any to mention the bizarre fact that the music for David Lynch's tune is done by Total. So it's got the member berries seal of approval. It's one of those weird things where you look at Toto and everybody knows Toto for that one song. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Nobody knows Toto for anything other than Africa. Completely, yeah. Yeah. Um, and this is, this is an honest challenge to... All the viewers out there and all the listeners out there, name another song by Toto without Googling it. Well, name another song by Toto without listening to our Desperately Seeking Susan episode where I think Sarah does actually name check another song by Toto, but yes. Yeah, but it, 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 hang on, hang on, hang on. I want, to, I want to make this clear. This is Sarah we're talking about, okay? The number of random things that Sarah knows that it's is just true. way beyond human, way beyond human imagination... Right, Sarah probably kn- Sarah probably knows the sun's name, right? And by yes. that I mean the star in the sky. Things that no human could possibly know, she knows. All right, she has that level of knowledge. This is not untrue. Yeah, no, it's it's very true. Um, and it, it seems like a weird hangover from the Hodorowsky version, where you had this idea of getting like jeweling prog bands for each of the film's houses like he would have magma doing house harkonnen and pink floyd doing house uh Leto or whatever and you know it, it's a kind of an interesting idea but i hate progressive rock so it's got that not going for it um but yeah total you know i mean even though i'm not a fan of the musical genre i can recognize there's a certain cachet to pink floyd and magma how do you get from there to total you know uh bless the rains down in africa i don't know <laughs> bless that the joke rains. didn't quite work there do you think that that song was inspired by the ending of june oh please don't mention the ending oh you went for the ending Hang on, shall we jump into that? Because that's the big thing. That's the as far as I can tell, that's the one thing that Frank Herbert, who was very gracious about this film and allowed David Lynch a lot of leeway to do his own thing with it. The ending is the one thing that really bugged Frank Herbert. Um to say Frank Herbert spat his dummy out is kind of an understatement. It was more of a uh uh, I I I've been I've been told reliably informed that um, as you know as urbane and gracious as Frank Herbert is or was, um, his reaction to the ending of David Lynch's June. Are you there? Have you frozen? You just seem no, to no, be. No, I'm here. Right, this is just a very long sentence. Sorry, you were just really still. His reaction to uh, Frank Herbert's reaction to the ending of June mm. was kind of just this little bit short of restrained apoplexy. <laughs> because what you know, when what? you're holding it in because you're in public. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so for, for listeners who are unfamiliar with. Like either the book or the film, what is the problem here? Well, the problem is well, it has to do with that line 
you know, from Toto, bless the rains down in Africa, mm-hmm. because they bring life and stuff like that. But unfortunately, Arrakis is a desert planet where you have a bunch of worms, and it is also the home of spice. So what happens if you get rain? Hmm. Let's examine this, shall we? Millions of years of evolution to get the sandworms and that particular ecology working Hmm. and spice as a thing and all of those millions of years well, rain on Arrakis is effectively like having all of Earth's volcanoes explode at once yeah, yeah it basically would decimate the planet. And you're like, you didn't really think about that, did you, Mr. Lynch? (laughs) (laughs) The other thing about it is, from my understanding, is that Frank Herbert's Dune takes pains to at least try and come up with science fictional excuses for its fantasy tropes, whereas by the end of Lynch's Dune... Paul is just a god now, I guess, and he can make miracles happen. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, this... uh, Right. Frank Herbert's Dune, as I said, has multiple messages in there. You know, there is uh, the role of women in society, for one. And there there are various other things, you know. uh, It's effectively a, a treatise on multiple things that existed in society at that point when he wrote the book, right? And it's proper sci-fi in that it reflects the real world. Yeah. Or it reflects the real world of then. And that's why it works as proper hardcore sci-fi, right? Whereas David Lynch's version of Dune starts off as proper hardcore sci-fi, and somewhere along the way, it kind of goes into, skips over into the Star Wars timeline where you have space wizards and goes, ooh, space wizards. Going to go along here and see where this leads. Let's go. Let's go. Oh, right now he's a god. You know. Let shall we go? Shall we go even further? So imagine the scenario where he went even further, right? Mm-hmm. And he went from the Star Wars universe to the Dragon Ball universe. That's right. We're going <laughs> Dragon Ball here, folks. And he's basically in the same universe as Goku. So Paul Atreides now is not just God. He is Beefcake God, who is now reached, who has now reached like God level seven. And he, you know, when he transforms into his Super Atreides mode, his hair becomes really long and blonde and reaches down to the floor. And his eyebrows also reach down to the floor for some reason. Don't is know that why. What was happening with his mullet in Twin Peaks: The Return? Possibly. We're not sure. (laughs) Not sure. We will examine this and come back to you. But anyway, yeah. So he'll go from the Dragon Ball universe then into another universe where maybe he can have multi-god modes. I don't know. And maybe even become a Transformer. It's something that could happen. (laughs) Mr. Lynch, make it happen. (laughs) Yeah, I'd absolutely love David Lynch's Transformers. I think it's not too late for that to happen. (laughs) Starring Paul Atreides, <laughs> and since since you gave since you gave such a big break to Patrick Stewart, I'm going to say, Mr. Lynch, make it so. Yes, nice. <laughs> yeah, uh, you're right. Though it does become visibly more Star Warsy halfway through. Um, my understanding is that the sonic weapons they use are not in the book. 
No. Not at all. No, there are no Sonic weapons. And that's it's... clearly the result of someone saying we need something like a lightsaber in this. Yeah. Uh, the the whole thing with the weirding way, right? Hmm. Do you remember Equilibrium and the gun cutter in Equilibrium? Yes, right? yeah. The, the gun cutter in Equilibrium I particularly like as a movie-based martial art. Mm. And the reason why I like it is because it's a very practical uh, thing and it's a very logical thing. When you look at the moves that they use in the gun cutter, some bits of it are completely illogical, but some bits of it are very practical and very logical. Yeah. You know? And so um, it actually makes sense from a certain perspective. You know, a certain, when you're talking about the uh, movie, the storyline, stuff like that, it makes total sense, right? Yeah. It's grounded in the reality of that film. Fine. Right? And The Weirding Way is grounded in the reality of the books. Mm. It makes sense within the context of the law and the traditions and the world building that goes on in Dune and the other book, Dune books. The Weirding Way being that particular form of martial arts. Yeah. Yeah? So, taking that and applying it to the David Lynch thing, you're right when you say that it is their version of a lightsaber. Um, When did Spaceballs come out? (laughs) I think that was like a few years after this. Yeah, because by the time it got to Spaceballs, and then I had to watch June again, um, kind of like my my, five-yearly penance, Kind of thing. Um, oh, was it five years or three years? I can't remember. Is it like an orbit Been too long. that every now and then you were just brought back into the orbit of June? Yeah, something like that. It's something between David Lynch and me that I wasn't told about. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> um. <laughs> so yeah, uh, I I went back into June and I'm looking at these sonic weapons that they've got and I'm going. Uh, and in my head, and completely unintentionally, my brother literally spat his coffee out because he was watching, <laughs> watching it <laughs> with me. And we'd watch, we'd both watch Spaceballs like a few weeks before. Yeah. And the first time Carl McLachlan, Paul Atreides, gets one of those sonic weapons, all I said was, "I see your Schwartz is as big as mine." <laughs> 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 my brother spies coffee out he's like where'd that come from <laughs> yeah it, it's true and I think <laughs> one of the things about sort of making June into Star Wars is that to, to a certain point I think people overlook the fact that Dino DeLorientis' plan with this makes sense that he had a history of getting weird art house directors to do big commercial space opera projects and having it pay off. You know, he got Roger Vardim back when Roger Vardim was, I think, mistakenly taken seriously as an art house director and got him to do Barbarella. That was a big hit. He got Mike Hodges back when Mike Hodges was mainly associated with Get Carter, got him to do Flash Gordon. Wonderful film. And I suppose... You can make Star Wars with David Lynch or you can turn June into Star Wars, but you can't do both at the same time. It just cancels each other out for some reason. Yeah. I mean, 
the the thing that I find the thing that I find fascinating about uh, David Lynch's uh, take on this and just the whole influence of the studio executives and the producers on the production. I mean, Lynch has made it clear that he basically had his hands tied. Completely, which, yeah. There, you know, there was you could time, see that from the production. There was a time when he used to walk out of interviews <clears throat> if people mentioned this. Yeah, I mean, uh, he did do an interview where he did talk about it, and we, you know, that is available on YouTube and various other places. Um, but the interesting thing about the whole the whole concept of Dune. I mean, Dune was effectively made as a counterpoint to Foundation. Mm. Right. And I find it interesting that Foundation has a TV series at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but Dune was effectively written by Herbert as a, as an alternative view to what Foundation was doing, what Asimov's Foundation was doing. Mm. Uh, the whole idea of a decaying galactic empire and what replaces it afterwards, that sort of thing. And that, I thought, was, you know, I've always thought that uh, Dune really did well serving as that kind of counterpoint to Foundation. A lot of people these days will not have read Foundation. Including me. Foundation is one of those things where if you're going to read any classic sci-fi, then Foundation is difficult to recommend. Mm. And it's also difficult to recommend Dune. And... I know that there are people out there who are going to be going, why? They're, they're going to want to lynch me for this. Pardon the, fu- pardon the pun. Yes. <laughs> but I will explain, okay? One of the reasons why I I find it difficult to recommend Dune now is because Dune, again, just like Foundation, is very much a product of its time. Mm. The language of the time, the philosophies of the time, the viewpoint of the time, things like that. And people now don't have that mindset anymore. So if you if you have an open enough mind, I would recommend reading them. But most people don't, unfortunately. And they are absorbing stories. It's just they take a little bit of time for you to get absorbed into them. Mm. The language is very, very, uh, the language is very precise. I would say, yeah. You know they. Both Asimov and Frank Herbert chose their words very carefully before they put them to paper. Yeah. So there are, they do have specific meanings, and a lot of those meanings got lost in Lynch's version of it because of the interference of producers and studios and the influence of Star Wars. Yes, yeah, certainly the influence of Star Wars, yeah. Which is a shame because um, I mean, for its time, in terms of the production, it wasn't bad. Yeah, I mean, the one thing that no one has ever been able to deny, apart from Gene Siskel, who described this film as physically ugly, and I think that is, like, almost mathematically wrong, because it is a gorgeous-looking film. Yeah, I mean, uh, I I would disagree with Gene Siskel in a number of ways, um, but the most obvious way I would disagree with them is... Just the sheer spectacle at the end of having basically all your all your main characters in one room with all of their different costumes and uniforms and everything like that, mm. just all yeah. in one place. Yeah. And I would say, okay, you tell me how that isn't a grand spectacle. 
Completely, yeah. And I think one way in which the film is ahead of its time is that it uses design to get those bits of world building that are harder to get across in a film story. Yeah. It has every planet have its own particular aesthetic and reference points and it, it yeah you know it it makes that not confusing there are plenty of bits in this that i found confusing but i was never confused about what planet we were on because everything looks so radically different and i really appreciated that yeah i mean uh it was uh, i think it was a rarity in films because it was pretty much the only one that did that mm. um outside of say star trek yeah. Where, where, and I'm talking about the Star Trek TV series, not the Star Trek movies. Star Trek TV series made a point of how, I mean, the, uh, the Shatner TV series made yeah. a point of having different aliens, but a lot of those aliens were humanoid, but it did have non humanoid aliens as well. Mm. And in a sense, Star Trek was very, very much ahead of its time because you had non humanoid aliens. You had aliens who were basically just gas clouds and stuff like that. You know, it's, but what this and, you know, strikes me as is a step on the road to something like Children of Men, where yeah. there is no point in Children of Men where anyone sits down and says, okay, so after babies stopped being born, uh, this happened and this happened and the government went this way and this law was introduced. That never happens. But if you're looking at the sets and the props and the clothes that people are wearing, you get the information, you know. Yeah. And... I think Children of Men obviously does it in a more sophisticated way, but, you know, this is the first thing that I'd seen that really builds a world in that fashion, I would say. Um, I don't know if it's the first thing I'd seen that builds a world in that way, but I'd say it's the first, it's the first thing I'd seen that's mainstream. Yeah, fair point, yeah. Uh, that wasn't a period piece and wasn't a Western. Oh, yeah, no. I mean, when you're talking about communities and cultures that existed, that is yeah. a different matter. When you're talking about building an imaginary world or series of worlds, there was generally an attitude by this time that if it's set in the future, it should look as shiny and new as possible. And then Alien broke with that and Blade Runner yeah. as well. But this is doing something more ambitious in that Alien and Blade Runner, as wonderful as they are and as beautifully designed as they are, only had to create one world. This has about four yeah. of them. And the thing is, what I, what I really liked about, um, and you saw this at the beginning, right? Mm. The idea that it's a decaying galactic civilization, a de yes. decaying galactic empire. And you got that re you got that inference from the very beginning, when the first thing that you see after the introduction, when you go into the space guild special report, yeah. is the emperor at a party sending his daughter away. There's gold everywhere. There's opulence. Everyone's wearing fancy clothes, and yeah. Yet the emperor is still afraid. Yes. Yeah. 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 I think. And it's. You beautiful know, grace notes like that. The whole thing yeah. doesn't work, I think, but there are beautiful yeah. grace notes in it. Oh, absolutely. Um, I really wish Lynch had been able to make the film that he wanted to make. Yeah. Because I, I mean, there's a part of me that thinks that, in all honesty, he would have done justice to the source material if he'd been allowed. 
as much as he wasn't interested in it um i reckon i reckon that he's enough of a professional to have looked at the source material and gone you know i there's probably stuff i can do with this well the tragedy of it was he was interested in it in the start and he remembers he hadn't read the novel before he signed on but he said he he read it very quickly and he found it completely Mm. absorbing and compelling Mm. And that he was very excited to start work on it. The thing that he says went wrong is, as you say, that you go into it and suddenly everything is being cut. And every time it starts to go off in a direction that he was interested in, it has to be trimmed back because it's too long yeah. or too violent or too weird or, you know. And that is one of the big complaints about Dune, the movie, mm. is that it's not an action movie. Yeah. Because it isn't. And there are long periods where literally nothing happens. And for a lot of people who... A lot of the... I mean, the executives didn't like it because there weren't enough fights. Mm. You know? Um, you had characters who were basically being introduced and then literally dying, even though they were quite important characters in the novel. Yes. yeah, And quite beloved characters in the novel. And yet they were making an appearance and then dead next scene. You're like, well, what was the point of that? (laughs) Yes. And you had all of these things happening. And you had Carl McLachlan, who just looked like he was acting with gritted teeth more and more as time went on. Yeah, (laughs) completely. Yeah. yeah. So by the end, when by the end, when he's walking around, he's quite literally going, do not cross me. (laughs) (laughs) it's fun though as a lynch fan there are so many theories that have come up over the years about why this didn't work um and there was a theory for a time that lynch excels at small scale stories you know eraserhead is mostly set in one apartment blue velvet is exclusively set in one neighborhood but you look at Twin Peaks The Return and that's a massive story that goes to Buenos Aires, Paris, other planets and it's great. So I think the only thing that is wrong, the root of everything is that it had to be compressed and also uh, he has also said that he was really uncomfortable doing like big blue screen sequences because they have to be planned so far in advance and he doesn't like that. If you can't improvise a bit on set it's not creative for him, which I do understand. Yeah, and I actually agree with him. Uh, I I think that if there are things that you can't do a quick fix for, because creativity isn't something that you can plan. Mm, yeah. It's spontaneous. It happens, you know, it sparks of, sparks of passion, imagination, call it what you want, but mm. they appear at random and disappear at random. And so you need to be able to work things out on the fly, on set, so you yeah. can capture that moment. Yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah. It doesn't work by committee. It doesn't work by schedule. You can't say, right, three weeks from now, we're going to be in here with the blue screen, and this one I want, that's when we're going to make magic. We're going to make magic then. You know, it's we're guaranteed. Make magic according to this very detailed series of plans that I have made. Exactly. Yeah. So I guess obvious question to close out with, as we have discussed this, have your feelings towards David Lynch's June changed in any way? No, I'm still in a love-hate relationship with it. <laughs> and I don't think that will ever change. 
And the main reason I'm in a love-hate relationship with it is because I really like it, but I also hate the fact that it was made like that. Yeah. And I can't blame... I, I honestly do not blame David Lynch. I don't blame the actors. I don't blame the director. I blame Dino DeLorean. DeLorean. (laughs) (laughs) From now on, he is that. And and his his son, Mm. whatever his name is. Uh, I don't know. Nino Nino DeLorean, let's call him. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Raffaella, I think, is uh, the person who was mainly in charge of this. One of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, anyway. Yeah, I'm going to... Oh, uh, <laughs> now his name has changed from Nino DeLorean to Mutant DeLorean. Um, <laughs> so, anyway. Um, Dino DeLorean and his son, Mutant DeLorean. I blame them, too. I blame the studio for uh, really lacking the ambition because there were a lot of Dune fans at that point and they would... And, right. Long before... You had this whole thing where the book transitioned into the film and basically the books are like hotcakes, the films are like hotcakes. You created enormous fandoms, stuff like that. Stuff like you saw with Game of Thrones, yeah? Yeah. Long before that, you could have had that with Dune. And that, yeah. I think, is one of the biggest tragedies is it's such a missed opportunity. The work that they put in, in terms of the production, the costuming, everything like that, they really could have made it work if they'd basically just had the courage of the convictions, stuck to the guns, and basically just made it into what it could have been. Because they basically... I mean, we talked about how a lot of the original book isn't there. What Mm. we haven't talked about are the bits from the second book that got included in the first... uh, in that film. Yes, and that's because there were a few bits. Because that's like that—that's the first example I can remember of this kind of outrageous sequel teasing that is now in every single blockbuster. But it didn't really happen in movies back then, did it? No, it didn't. I haven't seen many earlier examples than this. It didn't. Didn't happen like that. Um, The. I mean, it will it, it will always be a bugbear with me that uh, Dune, as dense as it is as a storyline, as dense as it is as a narrative, and as complicated and uh, highbrow as it is mm. as science fiction, um, because it is very, very highbrow science fiction. It's very high-level science fiction. Yeah. Um, it created a world, an empire, a vision of... Human of humanity's potential future mm. that at the time could only really be rivaled by foundation. Yeah, you know there are other things that can rival it now. Um, I really, you know, I really want Denny Villeneuve's work to just to just be good. Yeah, you know, and that's all I want is to see a good version of June on the big screen because it's a story that fully deserves it. And I'm already getting my wish with the Wheel of Time. Yes, yeah. I'm sorted there because I've spent years... I mean, everyone's harping on about how Wheel of Time is like Game of Thrones. I'm like, are you mad? (laughs) Came out well before Game of Thrones. 
does uh, you know treats women far better than Game of Thrones did. <laughs> the bridge for the stars there, aren't we? That's a low hurdle to clear. <laughs> yeah, but the thing is, um, in 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 the Wheel of Time, Wheel of Time is a weird one to actually bring up um, because just like June, women mm. in the Wheel of Time are creatures to be revered and feared mm. because in the Wheel of Time, um, they have the uh, the Aesidae who are women. There are male Aesidae, but they basically go mad and start killing everyone, so they have to be captured and killed or have their power removed by the women. Mm. So women effectively are in charge of all of this magical power. Anyway, before we get into reviewing yet another massive fantasy sorry, sorry. SF book franchise... I'm, I'm, I'm just, uh, <laughs> the par- uh, just, just to finish that bit off very quickly... Um, the th- the point was that June was doing that well before a lot of other books were doing it. Mm. Um, June was making the role of women very, very prominent within the society it created and actually making women um, creatures to be revered and feared. And, you know, it w- it's one of those examples of an author who is really ahead of his time in terms of his view of gender politics. Mm. And, you know, uh, I, I'm i not going to say June is a feminist book. I would say it's an, it's an equality book in terms yes. of gender, gender politics. And we will see whether Villeneuve, whose female roles have been, in my opinion, atrophying ever since he left Canada can get that done, because, Lord of mercy, I did not like Blade Runner 2049, but anyway, um, we will find out whether he's managed to do that correctly in about a month or so. You will have more pop yep. screen when we come back with our review of Ill Manners, the Plan B film, in a week's time. But until then, that's been your lot. I've been Graham. I've been Prob. And we'll see you all next week. 